As a 2,500-year-old brewmaster, you must have known many women in history. I'm fascinated with Helen of Troy and that big wooden... Trojan horse. Yes. Right. Well, Helen of Troy was instrumental in the design and building of the horse. She charged 1,400 piastres to design and build a horse, and then they would, it was went to arbitration because the supports, the beams in the horse's chest caved in and killed 14 soldiers, you know. It was, it was a big case. And finally, she was sentenced to prison for cheap materials and labor. And that's the true story of Helen of Troy, New York. <laughs> That's really ridiculous. Uh, but I just can't make a connection between a wooden horse and spirited Ballantine beer. Well, try a string. If you want to start living a life that's livelier, live it with spirit. Ballantine beer. There's more spirit to it. This is WOR, AM and FM, New York. I'm talking about spiritual pimples. It's good for the acne of the soul. Do you have athlete's foot of the psyche? Shepard, you're a fantastic singer. Well, let's face it. Speaking of uh, slobs, uh, that that uh, if if I may continue with that uh, that point about time, uh, there's nobody in the world, nobody in the world anywhere, Dad, who is more hung up on time than the good old American. I'll tell you, we spend our lives with the sound of clocks, either real or psychic, ticking away, tick tock, tick tock, they go. Guys on the radio every 38 seconds and less are hollering, it's 11.22, oh, God, it's getting late. Oh, holy smokes, it's 11.23 and you're still fooling around. Oh, it's 11.24, your life is dripping away. Oh, ping, ping, it goes. Yes, indeed. 
And so we are the only people on the face of the globe that divide time like salami. Yep. And you can buy all kinds of time. You can buy, uh, you can buy important time. You can buy, and you know, I think what this leads to a great, uh, a great feeling of being cheated on the part of most people. It's terrible, you know, to live in the day of the activists. You know, the active people. Do you remember the, the influentials? It's awful to live during the time of the influentials. And even by the magazine of the influentials, which, if I remember, was the Saturday Evening Post, and be working in the mailroom. You know, it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> so I think most people have a vague feeling that they're out of their time. Really, a kid wrote me a letter. He says, Shepard, he says, I couldn't say this. This is an awful thing. I just, just an awful thing. I've got to tell you, Shepard. He says, I couldn't even tell my mother. I can't stand the Rolling Stones. And I could see this, this letter was all tear, you know, it was all kind of, you could see the ink was dripping down. It was a kid who felt, you know, somehow he had missed the boat. Everybody else was jumping up and down on that vast merry-go-round of existence and grabbing the brass rings. And what did he get, you know? He got a free ticket to the Soupy Sales show. And he can't stand Soupy Sales. And so, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, where are you going to turn? says, you know, I think everybody, almost every last guy feels he's a phony. I know one guy who went to Yale who backs into the Yale club. He's a phony. He said he was a phony when he was at Yale. He was at Yale for seven years never was a Yale man. Never. <laughs> I know one guy. I know one guy who works at Playboy, for example. Hates caviar. Not only that, the poor son of a gun, he can't stand fancy restaurants. He cannot. Mixed drinks make him break out. He's strictly a Pepsi-Cola man. And he's, he, he goes around feeling like a rotten phony. He wears, you know, pick him off the gas pipe racks, Bond's clothes. He doesn't. He keeps, you know, he works at Playboy. He's surrounded by all these pictures. What the well-dressed man will wear after six. You know, that kind of thing. What does he wear after six? What he wears at five. That's what he wears. What does he wear at eight? What he wears at three. The same old rotten blue suit that scratches him on the behind, you know. And he works at Playboy. And he is in a cubicle right next to another guy who works at Playboy and hates girls. Holy smokes. I mean, the whole scene. So everybody thinks he's a phony. You know, he's walking around, playing it up. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a wonderful article. Well, I certainly like that shawl collar there. Yeah, beautiful picture, the shawl collar. Mm-hmm. Velvet. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. That dark carmine red cummerbund. Beautiful. Yes, indeed. And, of course, his idea of something really racy. Really racy is a pair of Sears Roebuck pajamas with an elastic waist, boxer type, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, this guy, you know, he's, his idea his idea of a really big meal, a really big, wild, swinging meal is a White Castle hamburger. And, you know, he's always editing these fantastic pieces about the, what the gourmet eats when he goes to the Riviera. And, by the way, he can't stand he He never leaves Chicago. He can't stand traveling. He hates going there. And he's always doing these articles like, uh, take that big three-day trip to Bermuda. That kind of thing. Just your young man flies his own plane to Bermuda. You know, that kind of thing. This guy can't even drive. His name is Hefner. I'll tell you the truth. Would you please bring me out a little music there? It's kind of nice. <laughs> It's all style in the yard wide, man. That's right. Get yourself a good frame. 
I know guys at the age of 22 have already bought themselves a magnificent monument to be placed over their final resting place. Wired with stereo sound. Fantastic sounds of Haydn's masses bellowing out. I've had an idea that before we leave this mortal coil, we're going to see guys, believe me, who will have their answering service carved on their headstone in gothic letters. And not only that, on the back will be their resume. I mean, you don't want to go, just have your name there, Charlie Witherspoon, you know. Fred W. Applerot. You want to let them at least you know you made VP at BBDNO. Can't you see Vice President of BBDNO in charge of the Aschenschlager Salami account? All that, they know, with little circles and stuff. And a couple of little letters in, in, in uh, bronze plaque of uh, letters of satisfaction from the sponsor. Charlie's work is fantastic on the Applerot account. To let God know that he's getting an important man. You don't want to arrive up there stark naked. Holy smokes. I mean, you know, when God looks down at you and says, let's take a look at the big book and see what your record is. You say, wait a minute, God. Here's my resume. It's all here. There's a picture there, three profile shots. It's very good there. But, of course, you faked it like every resume you've ever faked. You know there's a place in New York where you can buy resumes made up for any field guaranteed uncheckable? <laughs> I'm kidding you. There is an outfit. Look it up in the look it up in the yellow book. Under resumes. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir. Oh, uh, uh, speaking of singing, uh, Bob, would you please prepare me my echo chamber? I on cue now. On cue. Like I say. Uh, we are driven... Oh, hey, before we go any further, I'm not kidding about this this uh, bit about America and its hang-up on generations. I wonder how many times in the last two years we have seen a major issue of a magazine called uh, The Apathetic Generation. And then it'll have all, you know, pictures and story. And then a couple of days later, they'll have one called uh, The uh, Protest Generation. And you wonder what happened to the apathetic generation. Where are they? You know, they're still walking around. They must be. And then a couple of minutes later, you'll read, you know, there'll be another generation called the Go-Go Generation. Hey, let's try that with the echo chamber, huh? The Go-Go Generation. Go-Go-Go-Go-Dad. You know what a rotten person you are, Chef. And I'll tell you, just terrible. You'll never get ahead. You gotta believe in Sybil Christopher, or Christopher Sybil, or whatever her name is. You know, you just gotta believe in it. You just gotta believe it. You'll never be in, Shepard. You're perpetually out all of your life. You know, you're out. You know why you're out? The same reason Fitzgerald was out. You know that great line they talked about Fitzgerald? And uh, I'm not particularly a, 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 an advocate of F. Scott Fitzgeraldism, but there was a great line about Fitzgerald, and they said that Fitzgerald was always writing about the party, but he had a peculiar double vision. That he wrote about the party, and at the same time you had a feeling there was another side of Fitzgerald that was outside the party, standing in the bushes with his nose up against the window, watching them dance, wondering how much the band cost. <laughs> That's right. All right, come on. All, right, all, all set now. We've just been given the definition of what Shepherd is. Would you please put give me my echo chamber in there? I'm a I'm rotten, rotten crab. 
A crab, that's it, the rotten crab. You're going to learn how to swing your old thing. All right, let's, uh, please, a little more of that uh, sad music there. That's it, very good. It's all style, Dad. And a yard wide, a yard wide, razzmatazz. Rudy, 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 too. You ever had the feeling that Mozart fooled him more than anybody? You know? And the guy that really laid it on hard and big was Beethoven. You know, that Ninth Symphony with all those guys. Oh, oh, bum, 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 bum. oh, that's the kind of style you want, man. Scare the devil out of him in the promo department. That's it. <laughs> yes, sir, read Bob. Very good. Oh, yes, you know, uh, we, we must admit uh, that, that all these generations, all these various, the silent, the active, the protest, the uh, war generation, uh, the, uh, the lost generation, the depression generation, all these various generations, you know, it, uh, they must be around. Is there anybody out there who's from the old apathetic generation? No, seriously. Do you remember the remember the generation? A couple of years. Oh, it wasn't more than a year ago or so. It seemed like life's just, uh, the apathetic generation, and all over, everywhere you looked, each campus had a, a genuine group of dynamic activist apathetic people. Now, uh, uh, is there an old apathetic generation guy sitting around out there? I wonder what the apathetic. No, I'm not talking about lazy old slob Ted. I'm talking about. I, that's, don't confuse that. I'm talking about these, you know, these generations that they label so neatly. <laughs> Is there anybody out there who was part of the apathetic generation? We'd like to hear from him and ask him how apathy's doing these days. I mean, how he feels, how he's making it in the day of the go-go generation. And is there anybody out there who is part of the go-go generation? I mean, you know, who's a, can you just hear this phone call? Go, go, dad, go, oh, wow, go, go, Rolling Stone, wow, you know. <laughs> I want to hear from one apathetic guy who, who's left over. And by the way, I would like to hear from a guy who's a member of the lost generation. Do you remember when they used to talk about the lost generation? At the, oh, he's, uh, now, he's got to have to prove to me, though, because I'll check on him. He can't just call up and say he's from... Yeah, hello, Mac. You are an anachronism? You can't get... Wait a minute. No, no echo chamber, Bob. Just give me a little phone there. You say, right. you say you're a member of the apathetic generation? Definitely. I feel like an anachronism. I walked down to Whitehall Street and explained I wasn't against the war. I thought it was a very nice war. I, I couldn't see. get involved. That's terrible. You know, uh, when were you active as an apathetic? When was your generation active? It's right now. I've just started in the last three years. <laughs> Everybody else is getting involved. And... Yeah, I know that. You don't. I mean, you, you you can't. You know, the Beatles are around. You know, and you you keep finding yourself breaking out in pimples and all that. It just doesn't work, huh? Not at all. Well, I'm sorry, man. We're going to see if we can contact a member of the Lost Generation. Tell me one thing that you seem to do. I've noticed. You yes. You kind of go one beyond whatever is the hip attitude, and you almost come back to the general attitude. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know what you mean by that, but uh, that uh, I don't know whether it's a compliment or not. Uh, take it either way you want. You, yeah. You know? If everybody is saying we must go to Vietnam, you go one beyond that. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. You find something else to say. Well, maybe such and such is right. Yeah, it could be. Okay. 
Well, now, wait a minute now. Well, okay, all right. All right. Now, you say I'm conventional. No, you're coming back. You're going one beyond. You're one-upping. Is that whatever, right? Whatever Jeez, else, wow, else is... I love to tell you. Well, thank you, Richard Watts. All right. Very good. Thank you. What does he mean by this? I'm one-upping? All right, now, is there any... any oh, speaking of one-upmanship, this is a W.O.R. AM at FM New York. Hit the uh, gizmo in there, will you, Charlie, there? Miller High Life, the bright, clear taste in beer. Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Miller High Life. Only in Milwaukee, from a century-old recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste, unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in the familiar crystal clear bottle. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. <laughs> oh, I see what that guy meant. What he meant was that I do not agree with the consensus, apparently. Is, uh, not necessarily one way or the other, you know. You know, you know, I've, uh, that, that brings up an interesting point. You know, I believe, and this is a very personal statement here, I believe that people in general... Hey, fellas, don't worry about the phone in there. We're doing the show here. I believe that in general, most people have a set of attitudes. Now, maybe this is because the world they live in and because the business they're in has set them in this. And so if a guy is a, is a rock-bound liberal, he has a set of attitudes. I can predict what he will feel about any given issue before you even ask him. Now, on the other hand... I find that people who are rock-bound conservatives, on the other hand, are equally. They have a whole set. I mean, they come like in, like in sets of, you know, the, the famous five-foot shelf of classics. They've got them They're all the way down. Government is too big. All right, we know that. That's, that's their first thing. Uh, I believe in individualism. I'm against the Civil Rights Bill. I'm for this. Uh, and all the way on down, he's for bombing. He's for all these various things. They, go, they fit into a pattern. Now, if a man comes along and says, now, wait a minute, you know, maybe one side is right on a few issues and wrong on many, and the other side is right on a few issues and wrong on many, he will be looked upon as a kook and a fool and a knave. Seriously, do you know that on any given show, Bob, I will receive angry calls and letters from the liberal side and angry calls and letters from the conservatives on the same statement? <laughs> So uh, my, my feeling is very few people seem to be able to pick and choose issues, issue by issue. And so if you're for civil rights, you're against the Vietnamese War. That seems to follow. What have they got, to, what have they got in common? Nobody quite knows, but they all fit. You know, that, Somehow that's a great big ball of wax, uh, which, is, which is incidentally a great advertising uh, phrase. It's a phrase that came out of the ad world, meaning the whole schlemu. It's a big ball of wax. It all, it all fits together. No matter what it is, whether you're on the pickle account or you're on the football account or you're on the fielder's mid account, it's all called the big ball of wax. 
on, on Madison Avenue. And it's all, all one big general. Speaking of the big ball of wax, let's see. We have with us a rover. Got to get back to the ad world here. And uh, for uh, those of you who have never seen a rover, I extend my heartfelt uh, sympathies. But uh, this is a great car. And I think yesterday or the day before in the New York Times in the in the uh, newspaper section devoted to automobiles, I think there was a picture of a rover. But uh, pictures are very bad things. In fact, I'll never forget the time, but that's another story. <laughs> I'll get into that. <laughs> it's terrible. But the, the rover automobile, which is uh, built by the British, and the British can be fanatical. Uh, in certain areas, sometimes maddeningly so. But uh, this particular car took them five years of pure research to bring to the market, primarily because it is one of the most revolutionary cars in the world today, both from a standpoint of just driving and from the standpoint of safety. It is a great machine, and it's not cheap, by the way. This car runs about $4,000 as she stands here in New York and uh, is often compared with the Rolls-Royce, and seriously, too. This is the Rover 2000. And uh, speaking of good equipment, we have uh, also KLH with us. Hey, a guy wrote me to, uh, to ask me whether or, not, uh, whether or not this type of equipment, KLH, for example, he wants to know whether it can be delivered to New Zealand. Where the devil he heard my commercials in New Zealand for the electronic workshop, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know whether the electronic workshop, no, WOI does not have that kind of juice, Bob. I've, listen, we have trouble with Queens some night. Don't give me that. And I'm not talking about Queensland. Queens, I'm talking about Queens, Queens. I think the greatest name for an area I've ever seen in my life is Flushing. I've been through there. And uh, for for uh, <laughs> I don't know whether they will deliver to uh, KLH or other uh, the electronic workshop whether they'll deliver all the way out to to New Zealand, but I'm going to ask them about it. But if you aren't really fooling around with the idea of giving some high five for Christmas, you better call the electronic workshop. It's Gramercy three zero one four zero. They will match prices with anybody in town on any of the best equipment in the world. They're Address is 26 West 8th Street. Oh, one more note. We'll be at Rutgers tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. Well, that's Friday, isn't it? Oh, tomorrow's Thursday? All right. We'll be at Rutgers Friday night at 8 o'clock at the Ledge. And I expect a suitable demonstration of loyalty, fealty, and appreciation for a magnificent human being. Okay? That's Friday night at 8 o'clock. Bye, George. All right. Now, back to... Have you noticed it's very significant that we have not heard from a single member of the lost generation? Maybe they really are. <laughs> no, I suspect that the lost generation, if what I've read about them is true, they're all sitting at Sardis with black glasses on. And about three-quarters of a bun, too. Uh, at least everybody I ever read about in the lost generation was always bagged to the ears. Uh, is, isn't that part of that myth, you know, that uh, the myth of the, of the whole business of lost generations? I wonder what, how come they got lost? What happened there? I've wondered about that. And, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of great generations, I don't know what generation. I, you know, I've, I've, I've always tried to figure it out. You know, I was away when they had those names. There were a lot of guys, you know, we were in the Army, and we came out, they, they didn't have any generation. You know, we didn't, they, there was a generation. Everybody's walking around. But nobody put a tag on it. Uh, the T5 generation, very well be that, or the close order drill generation. 
<laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, everybody else is out there uh, doing the go-go. We were doing a Blake March, which uh, is a pretty good exercise. You know, speaking of, uh, of, uh, of, of that, the idea of, the, of absurd and, and the world we all live in. Because, you know, I think, I think these, are, these, are, these are words that become, uh, they're, they're like, they're like uh, any other kind of fad. Uh, a word can have a fad life. And even though the word, and, and, and it's always assumed, of course, that this word was just discovered. It's assumed that, that whatever the thing it is that it pinpoints, it just developed. Now, the term absurd is a good term. It's used constantly. It's used generally by bad writers uh, to, to, uh, to do what they call describe the conditions under which people grow up today in the 20th century. Assuming, now here's the, the wonderful assumption they all make that there was ever anything thus. They like to pretend that this is the only time that people grew up with no, uh, you know, no direction, no, no point, no, no, uh, no, uh, I suppose what they can call hope, none of these things. When was it ever? How do you think a guy felt growing up during the time of the plague? I'd like to ask Paul Goodman that one, see how he feels it. Well, he doesn't care. Goodman doesn't care because he didn't grow up during the plague, you know. <laughs> so that's a ridiculous question. That's all. That's theoretical or hypothetical or, or nonsensical. And yet I would like to know that. I wonder how a guy, a kid at the age of four uh, or ten, looking out of the window when the carts are going by and all the dead bodies are being carted off to wherever they carted them off and, and the plague has killed everybody for 48 miles around and they tell him to eat his Wheaties. They tell him to eat your Wheaties so you grow up strong. And uh, go down to the church and think good thoughts. Go down there and, and go to that Gothic cathedral and think those good thoughts. And uh, then uh, you'll understand what life is all about. And the carts are going by him. When was this? When was it ever un, not absurd? Can you imagine how a guy must have felt growing up, say, during, um, well, let's say during the Dark Ages? Uh, when there were a lot of fascinating things going on. Now, now, how would you like to have been living, say, in a small town in Europe that was suddenly overrun by, uh, let's say, Attila the Hun? And they said, hey, Attila's coming tomorrow. I mean, does this make life more meaningful, Mr. Goodman? I mean, does it make life sing? Uh, can you say to yourself that tomorrow there's a big hope and I've got a direction in the future? Come on. I think that what we are doing, we're becoming more self-conscious. I suspect that we are becoming more self-conscious by the instant. And as we become more self-conscious, we believe that whatever it is that we are self-conscious about, has just come into the world. Because other people, being less self-conscious, didn't make as much noise about it. Incidentally, that's also connected with, I believe, uh, the chickenness quotient. Uh, I, I, I suspect that as we get more and more uh, urbanized, we, we get so that we can control our environment. You can turn on the air conditioning, it's cool. Uh, you can turn on the, the air, can, you can turn on the thermostat and it gets hot in the house immediately. Two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, your own car, you know, has air conditioning in it or, or whatever. You know, you can have it almost anything you want. Even little oil heaters, you know, an old scene has Venetian blinds in the back of it. Uh, so as we get so that we can control our environment, we become more and more, uh, more like really a clam. We become more truly less able to deal with uh, the winds of adversity because we're so used to controlling them. 
We're so used to being able to... The average kid in school can totally control his environment, almost completely. Uh, on the one hand, he can tell his old man he threatens to quit. And, of course, the old man gets down on his knees and begs him to take an extra $100 a week allowance. And so the kid's got that scene going, see? <laughs> on the other hand, he's also faced with a group of professors who look upon him every day with eyes that say, Love me, please. Please love me. I want to be hip. You're hip because you're a kid. So please love me. I'm hip because I'm up here and I got a copy of Village Voice. See, look, watch, look at I read it. See, and then once in a while I say, look at her. I read the realist. I listen to Shepard. Wow. And so the, the, it pours out of their eyes. So the kid really, in a sense, controls his environment, and more so really than the guy who is out of school, where the environment begins to control him rapidly, like he he keeps getting rent bills. You know, little things like that. And guys keep calling them up and telling them to pay the phone bill. Either that or it's no phone. Uh, and little things of that nature. And so he then figures that the reason that he is now suddenly very unhappy is that it's all absurd. It's absurd. It's an absurd world. Have you noticed, Speaking of absurdity, have you noticed, have you ever noticed, uh, I noticed the other night, uh, the specific example it was one of these klutzes that are constantly appearing on, on uh, various panel type shows. And uh, this guy is looking out uh, out of the screen at me, saying, and he's saying, "Yeah, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't see how the adult world figures. How, I really don't see how the adult world figures that we can we can have any sense of uh, any sense of meaning or purpose. The adult world is ridiculous. The guy's 38 if he's a day. So, so uh, <laughs> the the point being that 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 to me is absurd. The ability to be able to blame everything on society." And I and that's why I feel things like uh, like the tripe that that Goodman writes. I think most of this stuff is is the ultimate of absurdity. It, it's as though it's it's pretending you're a turtle in a world of giraffes, and somehow you're not part of society. You don't have anything to do with it, and it's all absurd. Of course, you're not. I have to assume that that everything you do is because of beautiful motives. Everything comes out of well thought out reason. Oh wow, you know. And, and ultimately, uh, the, the, the genuine absurdity is the man who figures that it's society that is decadent and it's he himself who is being debauched by society. I think this is a, a pretty interesting kind of absurdity. But these words are all, I think, all very popular. Uh, they go out of, out of style. In, in the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot of angry writers wondering what the heck's happening. Their stuff isn't selling because they're writing about absurd. Well, the word is out of style, just like the word beat is out of style. There's nobody that's beat anymore, and yet guys are still trying to write beat novels. You know, this is talking about the ultimate of the beat, the hip beats. Of course, these words, just like any other style, I must point out, uh, I believe that like any other style, a style has, uh, it does not go through a society on a single note at the same time. Uh, for example, I remember most people who were really interested in automobiles uh, picked up on the uh, the foreign sports cars in the very early 1950s, like 1949, 50, 51. Hugh Hefner discovered it in 58. Uh, and there are a couple of guys who have not yet discovered it, who will discover the MG in Darien late in 1965. And uh, suddenly, you know, and, and things go through a society gradually that way, just like words. And so now it took, it took, I would say it took the uptown world 
probably three years to discover the word hip. That word had already passed out of the jargon of the hip years before. <laughs> and, and even to this day, uh, uh, there are certain people who are still using the word hep. Strangely enough, the New York Times crossword puzzle keeps saying three-letter word for being with it. And they say, hep, I can't believe it, you know. Holy smokes. Uh, <laughs> and, and so these, these words, you know, and, 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 and I wonder, is there anybody who's, who's part of the beat generation listening out there? Anyone part of the now if there's any I suspect that if there's any generation that I am part of, that would be it. That I I'm part of that, you know. But but <laughs> even at the time I thought it was ridiculous, you know. They, they were always writing Shepherd Beatnik, you know, and Shepherd Beat Hip. <laughs> and, and that word that word had gone out of style about about three years before the New York Post heard of it. And uh, it began to it began to filter through. Now I'm sure that that in the next couple of years, uh, they will they will discover out around uh, in the in the nice little suburbs the word absurd will be discovered just the way uh, the word beat finally filtered out to that world. It's, it's a very insular world out there. There, they're very definitely. You know, speaking of, of fascinating of scenes, I saw a guy on television the other. Day. You might have seen him. I really did. It was a fascinating scene. I saw this guy, and he had this gummy face. You know, it was a real nice. He had the kind of face, you know, that you always associate with Dick Foran movies. You know that 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 kind of the, the pure light. You can't tell whether it's naivete or it's innocence, or whether it's just gaminess that flows out of your wavy hair. But it's not so much the wavy hair. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look like a like an unsullied Christmas tree ornament. I don't know. I don't, uh, it's it's a funny thing. It's it's you're, you're reminded of the dust jackets on the Bobsy Twin novels. Uh, you know, a searing novel of the life of, of of Flossie and Bobby on the farm, that kind of thing. <laughs> and and he he looked out and and he was being interviewed by somebody and and uh, he says no. He says he says why I was astounded. And here's the the amazing thing. He was a young man. See, he says I was astounded. I cannot tell you how astounded I was. To find the kind of trash that uh, that the that the pupils in today's schools are being allowed to read, such trash as, well, grapes of wrath. We have this grapes of wrath. Are they still reading that, Reverend? Grapes of wrath is about as pertinent today to today's world as the Lady of the Lake. I would say the grapes of wrath ranks right next to Ivanhoe. And he says, I was astounded to read, to hear that they were reading that. Why, I took it home, I read it, and I couldn't believe it. Just absolutely. Not only that, they were reading something, this cheap material, something called Catcher in the Rye. Holy smokes, wait till he reads L Lord of the Flies. I mean, I wonder if anyone slipped them a copy of Candy. You know? <laughs> But the thing is, he he was he was lashing out at novels and books that had gone out of of actual not not out of circulation, but had ceased to be motivating factors in a civilization. Uh, well, Catcher and Rye, maybe ten years ago, easily ten years ago, it began to taper off, and then about 1956, 57, the, the whole uh, the the whole world began to shift more towards William Golding. 
towards towards uh, uh, Lord of the Flies, a whole new concept of man was coming in. And here he was fighting at something which had disappeared really for years and years ago. It's like getting very angry. Really, it's like getting extremely angry because somebody is reading Little Nell. They're liable to get ridiculous social ideas. Seriously, do you know that Little Nell in its day uh, was a, a searing social indictment? Oh yes, it, it, you remember the? Uh, did you ever hear of the of little Nell, the Match Girl? Well, it was a searing social indictment of the of the poor, <laughs> and, and and yet I could see I can see people getting angry about it. I can see people getting angry about Moby Dick, and I'll bet I'll bet this I'll bet this guy I'll bet this reverend who I, I think he was a reverend I'll bet he would not see the truly subversive books, which really call into question gigantic concepts. He would applaud, like Moby Dick. Listen, Dad, Moby Dick make, uh, poses a lot of fascinating questions. And, and mo most people are angry at things because of the superficialities of them. They'll get angry if it has a certain four-letter word in it, or any four-letter word. That's enough to make you mad, see, that's enough. Even though the book is totally innocuous. On the other, the, the, the truly, uh, I wonder how many people uh, really know that, uh, and again, I'm not trying to be a know-it-all, but I think I have read it, enough to have my eyes pop out of my skull for years on end. I will tell you this, though, that the truly obscene books never have four-letter words in them. So Candy is not, to me, is not an obscene book. It's a pure, it's, it's uh, childish. It's children's stuff. It's, uh, it's not even good writing. And uh, it's certainly not particularly amusing. It's very repetitious. And I think uh, in many ways it's, it's probably the epitome of, of sophomoric concepts of, gee, aren't we bad? You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's like kids writing stuff on the walls of the john. You know, you can, you can just shrug your lap. But, the, but the, really, the really obscene things, the really profane is a better word. Then this is a word that, that not many people use very often. They use the word obscene. Whereas the, the, the genuinely profane novels. Now, what is a profane novel? Well, I suspect uh, there's a lot of open argument about that, but I suspect that it's, it's a novel or a concept that calls into question some of the deepest held ideas of any given society. Now, incidentally, any book that uses four-letter words and deals mostly with sex is really not profane nor obscene because obviously anyone who would be driven to write a book all about sex or a book using a lot of four-letter words is a guy who accepts the concept, you see of sex being a taboo subject. Uh, so, uh, do you follow that kind of reasoning? So he really is the reverse side of the coin of, of uh, Victorianism. So a guy a guy standing in the Johnson, hey, boy, did you hear this dirty story? That shows that he knows it's a dirty story and actually agrees that it is. Which, uh, which means then that he accepts and believes in the various Victorian conventions. Uh, I've never, I've never felt that a guy who who deals with sexual subjects is is breaking much ground. This is a pretty old subject, uh, <laughs> and uh, it also not only is an old subject, but it's been done much better by many, many better people around. So, so why get excited over poor little hacks like Terry Southern? You know, uh, to me, uh, <laughs> and yet I'm sure that this that the that the people who will object to certain kinds of books would, on the other hand, applaud books 
not knowing really that that the that the reason they are great classics is because they do they do really shake the rafters. Now, on the one hand, I can see I can see a man uh, trying to close the school down because uh, the kid is reading uh, Catcher in the Rye. And on the other hand, I can see him sending to him to a school and applauding him because he's reading Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is about 20 million times more sinister. And I mean it. <laughs> and, 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 and because it's Conrad, he'd say, now, that's what I love to see my son reading good literature. And of course, it is great literature. That's the thing that makes it great. And yet, the kid, after reading Heart of Darkness, I guarantee you, will never quite be the same. After reading Catcher in the Rise, level the yawn and say, oh, yeah, you know, it's old stuff. He goes back to his mad. You know, he's heard all that stuff before. <laughs> so, so uh, if, if uh, you know, one night, I, I have a feeling what I, what I ought to do just for kicks. I ought to compile a list of genuinely profane novels that I have read. Seriously. Really, really, uh, that, that, that really, really lay it out. In other words, once you have read these ten novels, uh, you will never look at the world quite the same way that you did before. Uh, now, I uh, again, the word, incidentally, the word profane is not used here in a negative sense. Uh, most people like to look upon change as a bad scene. Who was it who said this great line? I'll, I'm trying to think. I'll paraphrase it. He says, you know, man is a funny creature. He, he, he looks upon any change as good, even if it's for a worse condition. He says, as I, I learned this, he says, I'm riding on a coach. He said, it was a great relief to, to shift my position and bruise a new part. <laughs> the the point he making he's making here is that is that uh, profane obscene what is all this absurd what is all this I mean life goes on and I mean life will be the same under any ism really except for the few of the superficialities people like to believe uh, I I've never been one of these great uh, uh, I suppose you can call them uh, apocalyptic uh, believers in the sudden turning on of the good life. Now, as you go back over history, you will find that it's just, the history is just too long. There have been too many gigantic, fantastic changes that have come about, bringing about great new sweeping ways of life. But the life of the man walking around the street under any given set of circumstances remains almost in its purest essentials identical to what it was before.